Well, hey, dealmakers, welcome to the show where it's all about financial freedom with real estate. I wanted to give a shout out to uh, one of our students. His name is Michael Lynn. He did his first deal. And as you know, we're all about the first deal because we love to hand out these coins, these first dealmaker coins. And uh, he worked with our mentor, full-time syndicator, Barry Flavin, and he did his first deal with a 30 unit with 1.96 million. And he got a $163,000 cash back at, at closing. He actually partnered with one of our other mentors. So we we love that. We have this deal desk program, right, where uh, where we partner with people, but none of our mentors ever partner with us because they partner with each other and 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 that's fantastic. So I want to give a shout out to both Michael and his his mentor. And this is what really lights me up. This is what we're what we're about. If you want to explore a mentoring program, go to the michaelblank.com forward slash mentor and schedule a call with us to see if mentoring might be right for you. I also want to give a shout out to one of our reviewers on iTunes. Jam Austin was a reviewer. And I love these things. And I'm just going to read it. Michael does an excellent job of providing valuable insights for new apartment investors. He emphasizes the law of the first deal. Again, that's why we have the coin. And goes out of his way to provide free advice and resources to help others succeed. I highly recommend listening to his latest podcast and going back to listen to the prior podcast that interests you the most. Keep it up. So I love that. Jam Austin, I really appreciate that as well. Today on the show, we're really going to talk about investing out of area, but in an extreme sense, because we're going to have uh, a couple on the show who invested from overseas and bought uh, a multifamily in the country. And the stuff that they share is insane. I can tell you that only because we already completed the interview and I'm just doing the intro afterwards. So I know what the heck we're going to talk about, but it is insane. The stuff they're going to talk about, uh, how to network virtually online is going to blow your mind. So we're getting into that right away. And uh, at this point, let's get our co-host on the show here, Gary Lynch. What's going on? What's going on, on Michael? So one of the things about investing out of area is, and this is a, a mistake that we made. I want to talk to you about it early on in Nighthawk's uh, history. Uh, because we were so opportunistic with partnering, we partnered with people. We had students who brought us deals. We partnered with them and helped them and got deals done. But the the main disadvantage of that was that we were spread out in different cities. So we were in like in six different cities at, at one point. And now we know that really it doesn't really serve us as well because because it creates operational inefficiencies. Talk a little bit about what problems does that create when you own a 49 unit in one city, a 69 unit in another? And you know, what are some of the issues that we, we were dealing with and what have we kind of done to fix that? Yeah. So I think economies of scale is that that is super important in this business in general. And it's really hard to create economies of scale when you have a small amount of units in a market that's away from your other assets. So think if you think about beneath the surface, you really, once you get into a deal, now you have people on the ground that have to run it. Well, if you know how certain people work and then in a different market, there's new people and you don't know how they work. Now you have different operational issues. You have to cater to both sides, right? So that goes far. It can go into construction, can go on, on the actual operations, your property manager, regional manager that's overseeing other people. It just increases your risk level and makes it a lot harder to run the assets especially from a distance. Yeah, it really, it really does. I mean, issues uh, just in, in finding proper managers and getting them interested in a small, whatever, 49 unit is a challenge versus if you have three properties totaling 200 units, you can now interest even a property manager who, who won't touch anything under 100 units, but there's 200 units and now you can attract that kind of person. 
You can share managers across different properties. You can share leasing managers, construction, any kind of thing. There's a lot of economies of scale that we underestimated early on. Now, I just got to say, just if you're listening, watching to this stuff, it doesn't mean that you should focus like a laser on like one particular submarket. Because if you're that specific, it may take you years to do a deal. So you have to be a little opportunistic. And you do want to trigger that law of the first deal. That is very important. And, and I got to say, as much as I you know, kind of lament having done some of these deal, Garrett, on the other side of that coin is that we wouldn't be where we are today. You, you know, you got to look at it that way as well. So yes, go deep as soon as you can. But at the same time, we wanted to grow our portfolio as well. So there was that that tension all along. Yeah. So the one way you could probably avoid it is, you know, if you can break into a major market where there's more inventory available in the beginning, uh, that that could help. Like Michael said, do your first deal of course. But if you can be strategic around making sure you're in a market with enough people, enough inventory, enough tailwind behind the market, start there maybe with your fifth unit and then build out. Now you have other opportunities on the inventory side. And you know, a really good example of this is we, we wanted to break into Atlanta and we're like, well, this deal, we found a really good one. It's only 130 units. I knew in the back of my mind, I was like, we need to find another deal right away nearby. Sure enough, Manager at one of the deals wasn't working out. We had the manager with the, yeah. the other deal that was really good go and oversee both of them. We wouldn't have been able to do that if we weren't in the same market with those two assets. And we had the foresight to have two deals by each other to be able to accomplish that. Yeah. On the other hand, we're in another city where we have 56 units. The only property we have in that market. We never, you know, we don't love the market enough. The market's not big enough really to get a lot of deals. And you're attracting kind of a mediocre property manager. And we only have 56 units. You know, I can't get a professional management company to go and manage a 56 unit. They want 100 plus units. Now, if I have three 56 units, got a total of 150 units, I might be able to interest them. And that's really the issue. It kind of handcuffs you a little bit. And then the results are going to be less than optimal. So you're investing out of area, which is the topic of our podcast today. Try to get scale as quickly as possible. Find a market where you can establish a scale. There's There are some markets that are really great, emerging tertiary markets, which are fantastic. But if you're, you know, if you want to do, let's say, analyze two deals a week to kind of get your deal flow going, you got to make sure you're looking at a market that sustains that kind of deal flow. So, for example, we love Huntsville, Garrett, one of our favorite markets. It's just not a very big market. So it's not like you're analyzing three deals a week. You're like, ah, I wish Huntsville were three times bigger, <laughs> you know? And so you got to pick a market where you can have the, the deal flow and where you can kind of go deep in a market as well. But that's kind of topic of our discussion today. And our guests are uh, Susie Sevier and Michael Barnhart. And they're, they're actually, uh, they're a spouse. They're business partners. And they're currently uh, living in a small apartment in Cambridge, England. And they're going to tell our story how they closed on an 88 unit and uh, virtual networking they did to get there and basically close this thing from, you know, across the ocean. Let's get right into the show with Susie and Michael. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your hosts... Michael Block. Hey, Michael and Susie, welcome to the show today. Thanks, Michael. So happy to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, we're super excited. 
I just can't wait to get in your story because you have been successful in, in closing at least one deal uh, from overseas, which is interesting to Garrett and I because, you know, a lot of people are complaining that they, you know, have trouble investing in the next state and how hard is that investing out of area? You know, and you guys did it from abroad, which is super interesting. So a lot of the things that you did are going to directly apply to people who are, you know, in this, in this country and are investing uh, out of the area, which is very common. And you guys are working together as a husband and wife, I guess. So I want to get into that as well because working with your spouse isn't always the easiest thing as well. So I just can't, you know, I'm really excited to get into your story here. But let's wind the clock back just a little bit. Why did you guys decide to get into real estate? Like what was going on in your life at the time that required the conversation around that? No, yeah, that's a great question. So everything real estate happened because of COVID-19 and the lockdowns. So when the lockdown initially happened over here, which was actually a year ago yesterday, nobody was working. Everybody had to come home. And so with that, Michael and I were like, okay, what are we going to do? Because we don't know how long this first lockdown is going to last. And because we don't have a TV, Michael and I were like, okay, we're going to start a mini book club. And so through that journey, we got to a book and it was called Multiple Streams of Income. And in that, it starts to talk about real estate. And Michael literally just looked at me and he was like, we have to do this. And so then we started all of the education part of like reading as much as we could, listening to as many podcasts as we could. And through that, we realized like some of the advice that people give are like, you should have gotten into real estate yesterday. Right. And so we were like, there's no way that we can wait. Like this is something we have to do now because there's a potential that we could be back in the States in three years, but there's also a potential that it might be longer than that. And like, by the time those years are gone and past, like, what have we done? Right? Like we wanted to make sure we were taking advantage of the time that we had off. And because everything went virtual, it created just like this amazing space for us to dive in and start networking as often as we could and attend as many virtual conferences as we could. Right? Because if we were over here and everything stayed in person, like we would have maybe been able to attend like one conference and like through the time that we had so far, we've attended like nine or 10. And so that's a pretty significant chunk that we've been able to just dedicate to real estate. Well, that's an interesting point because I've heard the other way also. I'm like, well, COVID really put a, you know, it really killed my networking ability. And you're like, oh, it was a great opportunity. So how did you turn virtual events into networking opportunities? Because it's a little awkward on Zoom, right? So you have these breakout groups and stuff like that. How did you guys go about networking in these virtual events? Yeah, great question. So it is it is a little awkward, you know, meeting somebody virtually and things like that. But, you know, we start showing up to all these conferences and all these events and these networking events and things like that. You start seeing the same people, right? To get to know people, you start to get a network with other active syndicators, but also uh, potential uh, limited partners. And so just going in there, being present, and then screenshotting everybody that's there and then following up on LinkedIn. And then you have everybody's name, right? From the screenshot, you follow up on LinkedIn you know, get on the message there and then get them on a call or something like that. Learn a little bit more about them and see if they're, you know, active GP or potential, a potential partner uh, as a limited partner. So. Okay. I get some ninja stuff right there. Any, any other <laughs> tips here while uh, the hose is open? What else you got? Another couple of events, um, people would create like a Google sheet and you go in the Google sheet and you put in your name, whether or not you're interested in being a GP, LP, KP or something like that. And then your contact information. So following up, is the key here, right? So even though everybody puts that information in there, you have to follow up. How did you guys find the events? Oh, it was a lot of searching Google, um, but then also just asking people like, 
hey, what events have you gone to? What are your favorite? And people are like, oh, I'm attending this one or I'm attending that. But through the connections on LinkedIn as well, people were sharing the events. It was like, hey, this is what's coming up for me this weekend, you know? And we were like, oh, here's another one that we can join. And so it was just a lot of, I guess, like being present and using social media, like finding intention on what we wanted to get from it instead of just scrolling through and losing all of the information that's valuable that's on there. All right. So what is the intention? Let's set that intention. Why, what is your intention when you, you know, when you meet someone, you follow up with someone, like what are the things in your mind? Cause you don't know sometimes up front, you don't know which way it's going to word out. Are they KP, LP? What? The, so what are some of the like intentions of what could happen once you follow up with someone? Like, what are you looking for? At first it was just, you know, just to get to know anybody or everybody that we could, right. We're newer to the space. So it, whether that's meeting other GPs or potential KPs, or potential LPs, right? And so just trying to get to know as many people as possible is just really our intention. We we would hop on the phone with anybody and we would make time to talk to anybody just because we were new to space. We wanted to network as quickly as possible. And we knew that was our way to get known faster as well. Okay. So you just want to connect with people just so you can chat about investing. Basically, that's what that's what you're doing. Exactly. Okay. And then how do you follow up then? What do you, I mean, what do you just, how do you go about doing that? Are you, are you systematic? You just like, what do you do? Do you have like a Google sheet or something that you call through? What is your follow-up process and, and how do you conduct those meetings? Yeah. So once the meeting is over, I guess, or I mean, even to start from the beginning. So in the meeting, like the main thing that we want to talk is like their goals and to get to know more about them, because that's really like what people want at their core. Like they want to talk about themselves. They want to be like heard and they want to be acknowledged. So while we're doing that, um, we're also taking notes because when we send follow-up emails, we want them to be very personalized and we want them to know that like we are paying attention and we want to know about their goals and we want to be able to help them like reach their why at the end. But then I guess from there, we also then drove them to our website. So when the call was done, like they would receive like a thank you for meeting with us. Like we really appreciate your time. Like here are the resources that we can provide. And in that is our website. So then they get to learn more about us from there. And we guided them like to, I guess, our thought leadership platform. You guys basically drove them to, you said, Hey, I'm going to get to know about you. And then you, you didn't even really talk too much about you, what you had going on. You were more interested in them. And then you just sent them a link to your website. And then how did you figure out who you wanted to follow up with over other people? Like what, what were you looking for exactly as far as intention goes? Yeah. So I think the biggest thing is, you know, once we learn their goals, whether or not they're interested in being an active investor or a passive investor, we kind of segmented them uh, in that way. Right. And we use a, a CRM platform and we can segment them, tag them and things like that. And so, but now knowing, and then also, okay, we know what markets that they're interested in if they're active. Right. So if we were interested in looking in those specific markets and we know who to contact for that market, but also on the passive side, if they're interested in being a passive investor, Hey, now we provide them with different resources. Like, Hey, here's, here's passive investing information. And here's all the information that we published on investing. And then just providing with that constant education, like week after week, and then you know, following up with them later on with a, another call saying, Hey, would you be interested in potentially in investing with us? Things like that. All right. So you, you mentioned this thing called a thought leadership platform, which we've been talking a lot uh, over the last uh, 12 or so months. And on that thought leadership platform, you're producing content, right? What kind of content are you producing? Is it a blog, video? Is it a podcast? And what frequency are you doing that? 
Yeah, so it is a blog. It ranges from like market trends to the market that we're in and then like real estate investing articles and then mindset articles. And because at the beginning, we didn't really know what our flow should be. We were doing weekly. And so that's what the email was. And what we found out that was if we took a step back from that and was sending it less often, like through email, then we were actually getting more views. So we were still letting people know that we had content that was new and out there via social media, but we did not want to like flood their email weekly. And then we changed that to monthly. All right. Now, so you're speaking to active investors and you're speaking to past investors at the same time when you're putting out blogs? Correct. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Good. So your mechanism was you reach out, you learn about them and you say, Hey, we got these cool resources. Check us out, get on our list. Uh, do you guys have like a lead magnet or some free download or something? Or how are they, how, you you just captured email address from the, from the conversation? Yeah, great question. So yeah, we do have two lead magnets, one geared towards active investors and one geared towards passive investors. So depending on, you know, which networking event we're at, then we'll share that specific lead magnet. What are the lead magnets? Um, so one is passive investive guide to, you know, investing in U.S. real estate from anywhere in the world. And then the other one is a uh, a checklist you know, a, a checklist from pre-LOI all the way through closing and takeover um, for the active side. That's pretty cool. All right. So it sounds to me when you're connecting online, you're segmenting active versus passive. Obviously, they're passive. They might be potential investors. If they're active investors, why is that valuable to you? What do you? What might you be looking for there? Yeah. Building those relationships to find potential co-GPs in the future. Like if we're lead sponsors, we're going to bring on some, some other um, GPs to help take down the deal. Or if we're interested in being co-GPs and trying to find and build a relationship with, with other potential lead sponsors. Okay. So give us an idea of how many people you've had conversations with, like five or hundred. I think I checked our Calendly. We had over 600 Calendly um, calls, I think, over in the past like nine months. All right. Gary, so. that's a pretty hard, hardcore <laughs> networking right there, don't you think? Oh, my God. Uh, when did you pick up this book? Like you guys picked up a book and then you're like, oh, real estate. And then you just started networking like crazy. Or was it before that? Like, how did that go? <laughs> yeah. So I would have to say the book probably came around like the end of like last April. Okay. And the networking did not start right away. And I say that because we like got, or we started listening to bigger pockets. And so with bigger pockets, it talks about single family homes, you know, and we just thought that was the way to go. Cause everyone's like, you just got to start in real estate now. And so we were going to go the single family routes. Like we had set up the team, we had done everything in a certain market and we had two houses that were under contract, but then an inland hurricane came through. And so that just wiped everything out. And we we're like, okay, we can't wait a year to start. So what are we going to do now? And we just like looked back and we were like, well, in five years, we said we were going to go into multifamily. So why don't we just do that now? And that was in August. And so then once August came around, we were like, okay, we got to turn on this faucet. Like we have to start networking like crazy right now. And that's really what, when we started like the multifamily networking. So this is a, a really interesting point. And I think so this this leads back to my personal situation a little bit, but when I exited my first company, I didn't have any relational capital. That's what you call this right now. It's relational capital, right? So I didn't really have a network to fall back on because you get you pull so many resources. It's not just obviously your network, but what you do with the network, but you gotta have that network in order to 
make progress quickly, I think, or even more quickly than you can in general. And so that's really awesome that you guys had that awareness that, hey, we're going to just go into this and, and figure out how we be, we'll build our relational capital. I think that's such a good point. And to do it during COVID when you couldn't even really go to these in-person events, kudos to you guys for, for yeah. being scrappy and figuring that out. Now, one of the things is, I mean, 600 calls, like, do you guys work or like, when are you finding the time to do all this stuff? That's a great question, Michael. So because we, because we're in a different time zone, right? Like I can work my W2 all day until 6 p.m. here. And now at 6 p.m. here is 1 p.m. Eastern time. And then, you know, anyways, it's a five hour difference and eight hour difference for Pacific, right? So we can literally work until midnight or later, like work on an entire full day U.S. time after we're done with our W2 here. So we were doing 20 to 25 calls a week for a long time. No excuses. Yeah, no excuses. And and you don't really need to sleep, which is also pretty cool. But yeah, no excuses. <laughs> you know, what, what I love about this is that people are always like, my gosh, you know, I don't have the experience. I don't have the money to get started multifamily. And, and, and time and time again, what happens when you when you get out of the house and you meet with other people, all of a sudden opportunities arise with uh, capital coming in and with partners, right? So you're just making stuff happen simply by connecting with people. And that's really the power of networking. I, you guys did an awesome job. I mean, I, taking advantage of this, it's it's crazy, right? Because, I mean, yes, arguably you could say that events in person are better and they probably are better, but you can't go to 10. I mean, it's kind of insane to go to 10, but you can go to 10 virtual meetings. And I think what's going to happen now is you're going to get a lot of hybrid events. So many people had to have uh, virtual events last year. We had to cancel our in-person and do a virtual. We learned so much that from now on, we're just going to do hybrid because it brings more people to the event. So, you know, yes, do the in-person networking, but the stuff you guys just talked about is, is going to serve you very well. Go to your one or two events per year, but then you got your other eight online. And I love that. So what was the result of all this, all this activity? You have all these conversations. What happened? Putting ourselves out there, putting, posting on social media and everything like that. We knew one thing that we needed being overseas before anything else was a boots on the ground partner. Somebody to be our eyes and ears on the ground where we wanted to invest. And just by putting myself out there and putting ourselves out there, hey, we're real estate investors now, blah, 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 on social media. What happened was one of my old classmates from college reached out and said, hey, I'm a full-time real estate investor. I just left my W-2 to do this full-time. I'm interested in getting into multifamily. I've been wholesaling and flipping for a while, but I'm ready to make the transition. Um, I can be your boots on the ground in these markets. And I was like, perfect. We actually really enjoy those markets because they're high cash flow markets and things like that. So that was the next thing, you know, that was kind of our foot in the door into those markets, right? We had, we had eyes and ears on the ground and that was it. Shortly after that, we also met somebody to help us along the way, uh, just organically through networking and just building a right relationship with people, um, especially specific active investors that were uh, in the specific markets and submarkets that we were looking in. And so that kind of helped us propel forward. So what are boots on the ground? I mean, you guys are networking. Are you guys calling brokers as well? Or are you just looking for partners at this point? Yeah. So very early on when we started our company, um, Susie and I decided early on that we needed to split up our roles so we can double the rate of success. And so what I decided to do was I'm going to do the underwriting 
and I'm going to do the broker relations and, and find the basically focus on the whole acquisition side of things. Susie has a, a, an MBA and a background in marketing and things like that. So she focuses on content creation, investor relations, and the whole marketing thing. And so we divided those two roles. And, and then the only missing piece in that was just a boots on the ground, right? Somebody to go look at properties for us when we actually found a property that made sense. Let me ask you something. You know, the boots, I mean, what, is, what role does a property manager play in this? Did you guys recruit a property manager? Because oftentimes that is the boots on the ground, right? Because they're going to eventually manage this building. Are you using a property manager or how are you divvying up the role between this person that you have on the ground and your ultimate property manager? Or are you maybe self-managing? Yeah, that's a great question. So we, are, we do have a third-party property management company. However, we knew that our investors, you know, knowing that we're overseas, they're like, you know, to break that mindset for our investors, like how are you guys mm. actually going to be successful in investing from overseas into the United States, 4,000 miles away? The one way that we kind of got around that or, or made our investors feel more comfortable is, is by saying we have a boots on the ground. If stuff hits the fan, then basically he can take, take care of it, right? So even if our third-party property manager starts to fail, we have somebody in place that can go over there and kind of turn things around for us. So that's pretty cool. Did you make him a partner? Or are you paying him something? Like, what's the arrangement here? Absolutely, yeah. He's a general partner on our on our deal. So that's a team. It's you two, and then this this other partner, or is there someone else? So it's us two, and we have um, we had six people total on the on our on this deal. Um, so it's us two. Our boots in the ground says three. We had another person who's coming in to help capital raise, and also uh, asset manage. And then we also had um, somebody to help sign a loan as a KP. And also somebody with uh, with the Freddie experience because we had ended up getting agency debt on the first deal. So how did you guys decide? Because there's there's multiple structures to how you can set up you know a syndication, right? How did you decide on what this was going to be? Was it just organically through the networking? Like, oh, this person could do this. Do you guys have a plan going in? What you're kind of looking for? Talk to us about that a little bit. Yeah. So we knew like a number size that we kind of wanted because we wanted the property to make sense to have on-site property management. And so when we were like looking at the price of the asset and then what the capital raise could potentially be, we knew that we needed more than just Michael and myself. So we knew that we needed somebody for like net worth and liquidity and we wanted the agency debt. So we were looking for properties that were stable as well. So we needed somebody for that. But then we knew that because Michael and I were newer in the space, we had a sense of how much capital we could bring. But because it's our first deal, you really have no idea. So just having, I guess, our boots on the ground and then having somebody else for asset management and capital raising, it just made us feel like much better about taking on a larger size deal for our first one. So did you guys find this deal? We did. All right. Or do you have control of this deal or did you give it up to get the deal done? Susie and I are the leads on this. We have full control. All right. But so you, so you have people who signed on the note from a net worth perspective, from an experience perspective. You have your, your operator on the ground. Am I miss, and I'm missing someone. Who else? Um, so two experienced people, Susie and I, and then capital raiser, asset manager, and then boots on the ground. Ah, why two experienced people? So one, one came on as a, more of a balance sheet um, and he had a little bit of experience, but we need somebody with a little bit more experience as well. Gotcha. So the, the one that was very experienced didn't have the balance sheet for this property? Uh, we were almost there. We just needed a little bit more to take us over the edge, but yeah. Right. So you have a yeah. lot of partners in the deal. You can look at it and say, my gosh, you guys gave up a lot of the deal to get this thing done. But you know, is it worth giving up so much of a deal? Absolutely. Because of the power of the first deal, right, Michael? 
The law, the law, the law of the first deal. I mean, I'm listening, I'm just listening to myself. Oh my gosh. Look at that. Yeah, that's so true because a lot of times people say, my gosh, I'm giving up so much of the deal. And I asked you about control because even if you had, you, if you had given up control, would you have done the deal or would you have said, no, nah, not for me? We would have found other partners. Um, and I say that okay. because like a big part of being in business is also trying to find like what's missing in your like partnership. And right. so, yeah, Michael and I came in like saying like, this is what we can do. And this is what we're looking for. So I, we would never put ourselves in a situation where like somebody else wanted to be like the super, super alpha, right? Because nothing good comes from that. There's too much headbutting. Yeah. And I think that kind of awareness is not something that everybody picks up on right away. Right. It's like here, you know, you kind of lay it out and you go, well, you guys did, you laid it out and you said, all right, this is, we know kind of what we can do. And I think in any partnership, it's tricky because you got to know exactly what you can bring to the partnership and also what, what they're going to bring at the same time. And so I think it's, did you guys go through any kind of a discovery phase and figuring out what that was or talk to us about that a little bit? I think the discovery phase, like the main one was having some people understand that Michael and I are two people and not one. And because we had to like experience that discovery phase, it just propelled us to like work harder. So I guess that was the only thing that we figured out when we were having these conversations. All right. So how did you decide who to partner with? Because I got to believe that out of the 600 conversations that you had, you probably had identified other potential partners. What were you looking for in partners? And maybe talk about some people you maybe passed on and didn't consider. Yeah. So I mean, like a veterans master, a veterans like real estate mastermind as well. And so like we were, I made a lot of connections through that. And so we knew somebody who was, had some capital raising experience, had a lot of experience as an LP, um, was looking to get on a deal. And that's how we found uh, our, our partner Cliff uh, was through this mastermind. And and we, I chatted with them a couple of times and I said, Hey, you know what, you know, let's do this multifamily thing together. We, let's join us and we could take something down. And then the other aspect that I really wanted was somebody to look over my underwriting and somebody to look, look over my shoulder, even though I've like read and, and done everything. We haven't taken down a deal yet. So I don't know all the specifics or things that I'm potentially missing. So I wanted somebody to look over my shoulder, make sure everything was correct. And not only did I want somebody that, to do that, but I also wanted somebody who had experience in the market that we were looking in. And so, you know, finding that active syndicator who is in that market, who could look over my shoulder and say, Hey, yeah, these utilities make sense for this area, or these rent premiums make sense for this area and things like that. Uh, and to make sure that we were on the right track with my underwriting. So let me ask you something. You guys are kind of the master partners here a little bit. I mean, it's pretty, I'd say it's quite masterful, Garrett. I mean, what you guys pulled off for, for especially new ones, putting together a team like that. I think a lot of it comes from clarity of, of identifying what you need. And because you, you're missing so many things because you're not physically there, you're like, oh my gosh, I need to overcome these. And you were very clear about what needed to get done. Did you guys have any other previous experience by partnering and networking or did you just like, why did you like just go full bore like this? What, what led you to believe that this was a, the way to go? So for me personally, I had no experience networking or partnering. I was actually like so nervous at the beginning of the first calls. I was like, oh, I don't know how to do this. Um, <laughs> so we figured that that was the way to go just because I mean, if what we were hearing, right? Everybody was saying that multifamily is like a team sport. Like you have to have a team to get you through it, especially in syndications, right? Because not only is your 
like general partner team, your team, but like your passive investors are a part of the team as well. So we just knew that in order to like grow that team and to make it work, we were going to have to get out there. We were going to have to be comfortable and just like have it all work out. Yeah. And the, the same for me, Michael, like I'm an introvert, like I'm a scientist, I'm a researcher. I, I spend time in the lab, right? That's what I do. And I don't, I avoid talking to people, you know? And so like ser- seriously, like our first conversations with, uh, with people on these zoom calls, like Susie and I were like pitting out, like sweating profusely because we were so nervous, but you know what, Michael, it reminded me, you know, your wildest dreams live just on the other side of your biggest fears. And so we knew we had to push through that wall and we knew how to, we had to do this in order to achieve the, our dreams. So is that your guys' why pretty much in this whole scenario? Because not everybody can do that. I mean, a lot of people get analysis paralysis, right? What do you think kind of sets you guys apart to be able to get over that hump, not knowing anything? I mean, being introverted, I mean, it's pretty incredible. Um, so I actually read a quote and it's kind of what like woke me up. And it was like, everybody has to start at the same place. Just some people are six months or a year ahead of you. So knowing that like we are in the same spot that the like most talented syndicators were is like all the motivation you really need. And I mean, even just to achieve your why, like, can you really be saying that you're like living your most authentic life if you're not working every day towards your goals and towards your whys? Cause like, if you wake up and you're like, Oh, I'm just going to put it off another day. Like, what do you get from doing that? Yeah. How'd you overcome that fear? Because I mean, I know what you're talking about. Back in a long time ago, I was actually, in, uh, I was I have a software background, but for about a year, I went into sales because I said I wanted to learn how to sell. It was the hardest thing I've ever done, calling on CTOs and CIOs and trying to sell them some software. It was insane. I learned a lot, but it was the hardest thing I've ever done. And I got to say, I mean, I was sweating like every single time before I got on the phone with someone. How did you guys overcome that that feeling, right? Because you still have this feeling of, of fear and anxiety. And how did you do it nevertheless? Yeah. So for like my work, since everything is remote still, I actually just asked my team if I could start to host all the meetings and take control of like a lot of the, I guess, like all hands So then that gave me an opportunity to practice and to hear myself talk. Because if I couldn't talk in front of my colleagues, then why did I think I could do it in front of strangers? And so that practice is what gave me the confidence. And then just showing up every week to these networking events. Because once you get to see the same people, like the fear just kind of melts off. And so once that fear melts off, just I would say through that practice and through that ongoing time, it just became easier, like naturally. I love it. What's it like to work with your spouse? You know, because I don't know. I love my wife, but we would probably kill each other in our sleeps <laughs> if we actually work together on something. So this doesn't really work out for, for us as much. How is that for you and, and how are you managing that, right? Because you're wearing now multiple hats. It's, now it's, it, it's, it's a little, you know, it's a little un, unusual that both are active. I think it's fantastic. But how is that working out for what are some of the issues that you that you have or that you had to work out? So at the very, very beginning, the inception of the company, like we were doing the same things, we were working on the same things. And then we, we quickly realized that we were stepping onto those toes. We were headbutting a lot and things like that, right? However, we heard something or read something somewhere. I don't remember exactly where I'm going to find it one day, but we heard that, hey, you know, from the very beginning, you need to divide your roles. And that's why, that's when we identified, okay, I would take on the acquisition side. She would take on the investor relations and marketing side and split that. And we won't be working on the same things, although we we having the same end goal. And that has really propelled us. Um, and that's, that's the main reason for our success. Yeah. And just to add, 
right now, even we're in our third lockdown and our flat is not huge. So if Michael and I aren't working together from like six to 10, then we're just separated. And then we're, we don't see each other at all. So it was like, how are we going to make the best of the situation? And now it's just become really fun because it's like, oh my gosh, look at what we're growing. You know, like we're doing this together. This is awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. You actually you you identified some of the some of the core things on on what I've seen partnerships work, and one of them is a clear separation of roles. And in fact, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, but the ones that I think are most successful are ones where the role is in fact divided in a way that you've described. You've got deals and capital, deal flow and capital, right? That works really well. And so, I think another thing that's interesting that I want to talk to you about is that you're focusing on content right away. Typically, focusing on content is something you do later on after you've run out of people you're networking with, which it seems like you guys will never run out. Now, my question is, why did you start doing content? So because we did not have a deal, we had to prove ourselves a different way. And like with the thought leadership platform, we could drive them to show that like we knew what we were talking about. We'd done the education and the research, and then we could like understand it and then I guess, spit it out to people in a way that they could understand so that people knew that this was something that we were serious about. We were mimicking a lot of the, all the people that we inspired to be. They were doing thought leadership platforms like that. So we wanted to mimic exactly what they were doing. But you guys haven't done a first deal yet. I mean, what makes you guys even credible as putting out content on this subject? Because we didn't have the first deal, we needed to make sure that we had the education piece nailed down and that we could show our investors that we had the education to back it up. I guess the credibility too comes with then the communication and having those investor calls so that people could really get to know who we were and understand that we knew who we were talking about, like face-to-face. Well, Zoom to Zoom, I guess. (laughs) Did it feel like you guys were faking it at all for a little bit? You know, I think for the very beginning, I'll tell you what, like when I first wrote on LinkedIn, multifamily investor, like I was like, I'm not a multifamily investor yet. Like I don't have any units or anything like that. Right. Yeah. But putting that out there from the very beginning, I kind of became that personality or became that person because of that. The reason I say it is because I think everybody feels that way at some point. I still do on things that I... You know, I'm 10 years in the business and I still sometimes feel like I'm faking it in certain areas. And so I just think it's incredible that you guys, you know, you kind of spoke into existence. You, you overcame that. That can be a fear that a lot of people run into at any level, uh, not even just in the beginning. And that's, that's really commendable. You guys were able to overcome that right in the, in the beginning. So that's why I asked that question. You know, I started blogging after I did my one and only deal. It was a 12-unit deal. And I convinced Brandon Turner to now write blog posts for the bigger pockets. And I felt guilty about that for like a longest period of time. And then it occurred to me because of the way people react to this content, and you're seeing that is as long as you're one step ahead of your reader, you are providing value. You don't need to be 10 steps ahead. And I think that's a big misconception with people. Oh, I'm not an expert. You know, I can't write on this or create a YouTube video, but you just learned something. You had a conversation, you learned something, you read a book, okay? You, a book or something you learned that someone doesn't have. And if you blog about it, it's providing value. And I think that's the main misconception about that. And, and, and it's, it's great that you guys discovered that, hey, it's okay. I don't need a unit, uh, any units at all, but there's something I've learned that maybe someone can benefit from. So I, I love that. I love that. So what's some parting advice you guys have for someone listening, watching to this going, man, this is great. I want to do that. 
what do you advise that they should do? So the biggest thing that I think has helped us is clearly define your goals. Like we have, you know, goals that we have to accomplish by the end of the year, five-year goals and 10-year goals, and then breaking those down, you know, the year goals into quarterly goals, and then breaking those down into weekly and daily and so forth. And then you know exactly what you need to do every single day. Make yourself 1% better, do something 1% towards your goal. It's going to compound and you're going to achieve your goals. Yeah, and I think something to add to that is understanding that like real estate is a balancing act. So you can't just focus on investor relations and then go and focus on your website. Like you have to find that flow of incorporating it all at the same time. So like attending those conferences while you have to do the investor relations and while you also have to underwrite, you just have to make sure you're like giving the proper time to everything so that something doesn't fall back into the cracks. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and that's an, a great argument for having a, a partnership because there's only so many hours in the day. The difference with multifamily over almost any other business at the pie, it can grow so quickly where it's worth everyone's time, right? Because typically you got three, four partners. You're like, my gosh, uh, how many restaurants do I need to open and make enough money to make this worth everyone's time? Like it's a lot. It's insane. But with multifamily, you you close on a, a $5 million deal and you have a $150,000 acquisition fee. I mean, that's astounding. And the equity that you're creating from that. And so this is why uh, syndication is really a unique business out of all the businesses in the world. So I love that. So how can people connect with you and download your fantastic lead magnets? Thanks for asking, Michael. So throughout this whole process, Susie and I thoroughly documented like each step that we took from pre-LOI submission all the way through closing and takeover of the property on this most recent deal that we just did. And so we then took that information, distilled it down into a checklist of over 200 items. And now we want to share that, that checklist with your audience. So if you head over to adventurousrei.com forward slash checklist, you can download it there and you can find us there as well. That's awesome. And then we'll put that in the show notes as well. That's not bad for an introverted guy, Michael. Not bad. Not bad at all. Good job. <laughs> hey, you. it was a real pleasure having you guys on the show. Yeah, it was awesome. And yeah, it's just a pleasure being on the show since I've listened to so many episodes. Yeah, it's a great time. Yeah, thank you so much. But Garrett, I had a really good time on this interview. I think the stuff that Michael and Susie talked about are so practical. And, and what I love about it is that they address so many objections and excuses that I've heard over the years. Yeah. I look back at that and I'm, I'm like wondering myself, I'm like, would I have been able to do that in this environment? You know, like what, what an impressive couple and, and the stuff that they were able to overcome. The one thing that really stuck out to me right away was their ability to go into these meetups. We're like meetups. How are you going into meetups? Like, oh, virtually. And they're screenshotting the meetup and then reaching out to those people on LinkedIn individually. What a genius idea. That is a genius idea. And, you know, we, we at Dealmaker Live, for example, last year, you know, tried to make it easy. We had breakout rooms, which are fantastic. And, and they probably were fantastic. But then what happens after the event? And I think that's the missing link that these guys connected is, yes, you meet all these people, write down their information and, you know, ask them for their information, but then actually look them, stalk them on LinkedIn and, and reach out to them. And I bet you they probably had a spreadsheet tracking all this stuff. And I love how systematic they were. That's fantastic. Yeah. You know, I think if you think about when you even go to an event, you get a stack of business cards and maybe you don't call them ever again. <laughs> so I think, I think that is the next step, which really set them apart and allowed them to really build, quickly build the relational capital that's so important. And so um, the, the fact that they were able to do that overseas, literally some, you know, the other takeaway for me was that they're doing kind of like, I don't know if you 
it's kind of a Gary V thing I hear a lot, which is like uh, work your nine to five and then work your work the business afterwards. They were able to do that uh, even more effectively being overseas. But regardless, people can do that. And it's it's such a, a cool thing that I got from that, that they, these guys are actually doing it. Yeah, I mean, 600 calls, that's insane. What I love about it is they, they, they took advantage of, they saw an opportunity where most people saw roadblocks. COVID, major roadblock. I can't attend my networking events. I can't attend my local meetup. I can't, I can't, I can't. Then the time difference. Oh, well, the time difference is, is you know, that, that, but they took an opportunity because like they said, in the evenings, they're six hours ahead. It's going to be the afternoon on the East Coast. And so they can actually make phone calls during business hours. So it's amazing how they took advantage of things that most people would consider a challenge. That's amazing. Yeah. And the biggest one to me was like not feeling like an imposter. That imposter syndrome is so real. That's why I asked them yeah. the question is it's just, you know, I don't know anything. I'm not, you know, there's so many people that are at these events that don't know anything, but they've taken their proactive approach to say, hey, this is what I can provide. This is what we're looking for and being very clear about that and then going out and, and putting that intention into the world to get results. Yeah, that's right. And and what's interesting about them is uh, is that they committed to producing content right away. And they did it a little bit out of necessity because imagine you have a conversation with 600 people. You're not going to have a second conversation with them next month. You, you'd never get done, right? It, it's too too big. So what they did instead is, okay, I'll put you on my email list and I'm going to build a relationship with you by providing value, by providing free content that educates them about some aspect of, of investing in syndications. And that really, it's the importance of a platform. And we talked a lot about that. And and if you want to learn more about building a platform, go to platformbuilders.com. There's actually a class that we recorded that you can watch a replay where I kind of go deep on on, on the right sequence to build a platform, what the elements are and why it's important. And these guys kind of intuitively did it before. So I, I really, really love that. So check out platformbuilders.com. And our networking event is going to be Dealmaker Live in July. It's going to be July 16 to 17. It's going to be in Dallas at the Hilton Anatole. It's going to be a limited in-person event and it's going to be online as well. Well, we're going to pull up, we're going to try to pull off a hybrid event and it's uh, coming together. I'm really excited about that. So mark your calendar. Again, it will be limited because we will have some restrictions there. Uh, that'll be Dallas, July 16 to 17. Go to dealmakerliveevent.com. I think we have a wait list there. You can put your, your name on if you're interested in that. Uh, and if you are interested in investing with Nighthawk Equity, Garrett and I are partners in Nighthawk Equity. We'd love to have a conversation with you. Uh, and you can find out more about nighthawkequity.com. You can click the join button and uh, fill out a short form and then talk with us about potentially investing in some upcoming opportunities. So I hope you guys got some inspiration today from Susie and Michael. I certainly I did a lot of fun how they overcame objections and turned roadblocks into opportunities. So hopefully you go out there and start networking virtually and hopefully soon in person. Catch you guys next time. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There you can also download the free ebook, the secret to raising money to buy your first apartment building. Till next time.